Hey guys, Barney here. I just want to take a quick moment to talk about the program that brings The Big Top to life, Zencaster. I use Zencaster for all my recordings, and since taking over The Big Top fully, I have actually tried other systems, but I ended up sticking with Zencaster. It's so easy to use. You don't have to download anything, just log in using your browser and start recording a high-quality podcast right away. It records studio-quality sound and up to 4K video with guests, along with a full suite of professional tools that let you produce and publish all from one dashboard. Being a creator has genuinely never been easier. And I love that I can send a simple link to my guests and we can record over a video call wherever they are in the world. Also, if you're like me and cannot stand the sound of your voice, Zencaster's built-in post-production process makes such a difference. It automatically removes ums and ahs, awkward pauses, reduces background noise, and makes me sound so much better. Plus, the hobbyist and Creator Plus accounts are always free to use, and their professional accounts are free to try for 14 days, no credit card required. Go to Zencaster.com forward slash pricing and use my code BIGTOP, and you'll get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. I want you to have the same easy experiences I do for all my podcasting and content needs. It's time to share your story. Been a while since I did something like this. When I started this podcast, I immediately had a crisis of imposter syndrome and a fear of failure. I think my desire to be understood was such that I wanted to record an episode of just me talking, frankly and honestly, about where my head was at. That was a year ago now, and so much has changed. I've learned a lot, made mistakes, grown, all that good stuff. And I want to take the time to check in with where things are headed. As my confidence with what this podcast is, and with my own position within the fetish community, has grown, I feel both that I do and don't know what I'm doing. I guess the goalpost has moved. The goal changed into something more nebulous. I'm committed to platforming the stories of others, to talking about the state of things and how they might change. We're still not here to be right, to be perfect, or edit ourselves. This is a little window into a deeply personal area of someone's life, and while it's fun to try new things and shake up the formula, this podcast is, at its core, about people. My own mental state has been in an interesting state of flux. I'm on the same medication, but I feel like my life has changed so much so quickly that I'm unsure if I'm facing the same flavor of issues. It's come to my attention that I may have some attention deficit contributing to my executive dysfunction. I'm not in therapy at the moment, and I'm feeling okay about it, even if I could do with it at times. Oh, and I lost my job recently. I've loved working at Fetish Daddy, but financial issues led to layoffs, and as social media manager, my head was first on the chopping block. I've started splitting my time between here and Berlin more, and I'm open to seeing where that leads. I've never been afraid of the admin of the future. It's the interpersonal that's always paralyzed me with fear and anxiety, and that I have made progress on. A few years ago, I went through an existential crisis that persisted for a good long while. I was obsessed with death, meaning, and making life worthwhile. 
I felt my mortality creep up on me with the creaking passage of time and experienced a total paralysis from all the pressure of making something memorable of my life. I felt this necessary for it to be worth having lived. I so desperately wanted to carve an etching of myself on this world to immortalize my memory, but was so overwhelmed by the prospect of doing so that I did nothing. You can't fail if you don't try. I think I've said this before, but I used to walk by gravestones and try to read the names of the most faded ones, just so that they weren't for a moment completely forgotten. I would lie awake at night, fearful that I wouldn't be able to fill my life with enough to make it meaningful, and that it was already too late to start. Stories are my drug. Television, film, comics, podcasts, less often books these days. But characters, especially of the fantastical variety, are how I learned to relate to the world growing up. Their stories make sense of life's vagaries. Their narratives neatly carve out meaning from the void. It's why I bathe in the fictional waters of Digimon and Scooby-Doo and all things Marvel. They comfort me. The X-Men felt like family growing up. The Digi-Destined felt like friends. Mystery Inc. felt like fun cousins that occasionally visit. I watched enough Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel to wallow in the high drama of waxing philosophical. I poured my emotions into the characters as they dealt with metaphorical realities in their supernatural worlds. I related to their interpersonal and mundane struggles as they made parallels to real-world harsh truths whilst punching monsters. I considered the burden of how inconsequential I was, especially sitting in the dark by myself mulling over the importance of the universe. I was even inspired to read some Sartre. But you can read all the philosophy and watch all the superhero shows you want, your life won't change unless you change it. Your attitude can't change unless you work on applying the new one you want to have. I guess it's why some people can read a religious text and find it a helpful guide, while others can descend into an obsessive extremism over the minutiae of someone else's words. And this is where my philosophical despair over life's meaninglessness intersected with my passion for kink. I realized my uniqueness was not some gaseous quality I was both so sure of and yet insecure over. It had a tangible manifestation, and I faced the choice to embrace the weirdest, most embarrassing parts of me. That feeling is, I'm sure, more relatable than any of us give it credit. We're all the stars in our own little stories, but the protagonist traits we assign ourselves are often shielding more interesting complications, shuddering with insecurity. Sometimes I feel like I just want to sexually reject someone to confront their notion of attraction. Not necessarily to feel superior or even desired, but to demonstrate something about myself, to prove how different we all are, to reject the societal image of sexuality. My darker impulses usually take some form of proving wrong someone's assumption. Fantasies about showing off how much smarter or quicker or talented or, or wealthy or beautiful I could hypothetically be only to then subvert someone else's expectations of my own desires or priorities. A lot of that stems from growing up with an abusive parent and never getting to be right, but I'm also sometimes paranoid that people wouldn't like me if I didn't have certain superficial qualities, and I often exaggerate them in a daydream to act out dealing with that rejection. And that feels good to admit. I'm really happy not worrying about being normal, or fitting in, or following a set path. But that leaves a lot of uncertainty. 
I can't shift any responsibility for my life. Which may be partly why I launch from, I've been so right today, my ego's enjoying the helium, to, this coffee has made me anxious, that ginger shot made me feel alive but I don't have the will to do anything, the eggs I made make me feel like I'm not living up to my potential, if I can make perfect eggs but can't get off the couch, and the orange juice was lovely but the only good thing in my life right now can't be orange juice! All of which I'll probably fruitlessly text to someone I know is busy at work, but since I can't get over the stabbing insult of being ignored, I just keep going and refuse to stop talking, inviting them to chime in at any point, so that the archaeologists who find my fossilized iPhone don't think I was as much of a loser as the rest of my recorded history might suggest, and then spend the next hour fantasizing about what other remains I'll leave behind for people to find. Or how certain conversations might go the next time I'm forced to leave my den of solitude and actually talk to people. But whether I'm self-diagnosing after a particularly analytical episode of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, or questioning the nature of the universe through the eyes of Firefly's unique cast, or just enjoying the high-concept nihilism of Rick and Morty, or even enjoying a fun-cast quarrel over the trolley problem in The Good Place, it's all a soothing activity to me. It prepares me for the real world. I get to live these lives in small, short bursts and feel a sense of conclusion. I get to wrap my emotions up in a neat 45-minute arc. These are the times I let myself cry. We all have this uncanny desire to make sense of senselessness. For all we know, life could be a simulation, and here we are creating smaller simulations to experience as much as we can. Which is part of why I love fantasy. I love to imagine a world as bizarre as the Umbrella Academy, or as fun as Pokemon, or as exciting as Torchwood, or simple as Charmed. I can daydream mind-melting fanfiction as I insert situations into my life and vice versa. Ask the real questions, you know? Like, is Haruhi Suzumi a god? Or is Kyon? What would my crime coefficient be and what would it take to tip it into the red? What wish would I have Kyube grant? Can broccoli really determine someone's sex? If I see a number drawn on my body, am I a time traveler? Or is there an alien in the room? What if Bad Wolf is more than just a meme? Albert Camus described three responses to what he called the absurd, the pointlessness of life, out of which he touted rebellion to be the most optimal, since it is the only one that recognizes the absurd instead of escaping it. Meaning is then subjective and can be arbitrarily founded on a personal level. The three main responses are typically defined as a leap of faith, holding on to some belief, whether that be rational or theological, to reject the idea that the universe has no meaning, and following the tenets of that prescribed, ostensibly objective meaning. Suicide, a logical conclusion to life's meaninglessness that ultimately has us giving up the potential to exercise our free will. And finally, Camus' interpretation of rebellion, embracing the absurdity of existence and creating meaning through our choices. Choosing to live, choosing our purposes, pursuing our passions, outlasting our defeats choosing what we do, today. We can choose to rebel against the world, protest in despair at how uncaring it is, and we can choose to accept the state of the universe, to find peace in it, to embrace its chaotic dance. We all need to work out for ourselves how we come to terms with life. I've consumed enough media debating whether what we choose to do matters because nothing else does, or else because we get to choose that it does, to know that I'm finally content with there being no answer. We don't get to peer behind the door of truth, because there may just not be one. 
I'm still somewhere between the person that I am and who I want to be, and that's okay. I am okay with that. Life is made up of liminal circumstances, we're never quite one thing or the other. There's always someone else who's further along than we are. There's always more path to walk. Every now and again, I look back on who I was mere years or even months ago, and I feel so different, so changed by what's transpired since. Occasionally, I'll even listen back on episodes of this, my own podcast. I'll let you decide how narcissistic that is, but there's something really enjoyable about hearing this version of me who seems so much younger, trying his best to do a good job. I've recently been dealt some difficult and confusing news that's left me conflicted. As I prepare to potentially fumble through the rungs of grief again, I'm back to considering the choices laid out in front of me. I don't know if I need to make a grand one, and I don't know when or how or if I'll regret it if my choice is to do nothing. But I'm okay with that. With all of it, I think. Life isn't a clear answer. I may live with regrets. Things might hang over me that I wish I said while I could. And maybe it's okay that the picture of my life has some splotches. I guess I keep coming back to this point of nothing mattering. This absurdist existentialist stance has helped me, and I guess it's because the more I think about it, the more robust it feels. Nothing mattering means that then it also shouldn't matter how we respond to the fact nothing matters. And it doesn't. Or at least, that's what I think. That's the point. You can accept it. We have the freedom to accept it. We can build meaning. We can accept the pointlessness of doing so and be content with it. You can be an anarchist. You can take a nihilistic approach. But that's your choice, and its consequence might be that you find life harder or more hostile than people who choose to work together. Absurdist philosophers don't seem to agree on whether or not moral values exist intrinsically, which, yeah, kind of feels about right. I guess you could argue to some extent that it doesn't matter if they do or not. I won't pretend that I have a greater understanding of these concepts. What I know is that the way I see things is just what's worked for me. That it won't make sense to everyone, and that's also okay. We all need to find whatever it is in this life that makes it worth being here. We are as varied as the choices laid before us. This podcast is my journal. It is my story. This is the best window into me as a person, and I like knowing that without even really meaning to. By virtue of injecting my own personality and creativity into these conversations, into the format, the editing, I've woven pieces of myself as a narrator. That this can continue to exist beyond me gives me a sense of giddy nostalgia. I've ended up creating the very record of myself I was so afraid I couldn't achieve, at least in some small way. It took getting over my existential paralysis to unlock the potential to actually combat those fears. I've said it before, we make the prize. The day is never won, there is always tomorrow. A new day, to fill with meaning. But we can look at all the snapshots of moments and bonds, relationships and memories, time spent and filled with every emotion we have to express. This is the prize. We build it. And if it is unfulfilling, we have the power to build a new one. To start again, start over. Tomorrow is full of potential. Anything can happen. We can do anything. 
no one else can choose for you. No one else can determine how we live our lives in a way that's meaningful to us. The more time I spent being depressed, the more of my life I felt was wasted, and that cycle perpetuated until I finally decided it didn't matter how much time I spent doing what. Today is not yesterday, and yesterday doesn't define my life. Yesterday was a small pocket that doesn't have to matter to me anymore if I choose to enjoy today. When my life stopped being something that happened to me every day, but instead became something I did, suddenly the pressure of choice alleviated. All of the choice is my own, and I can choose to live in a way that isn't terrifyingly burdensome or pressure-filled or laden with expectation and marred by regret. It can be fun. It can be relaxed. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy or wholly stress-free or devoid of responsibility. It means I get to take responsibility for my own happiness and choose to pursue it every day. I've always had an optimism that I just cannot shake. I've always been so sure of things working out. That may in large part be a crutch born of my inherent privileges growing up, but it feels more like a philosophy. Despair gets matched by my natural sense of awe and wonder at the world. I can look out the window and feel the nostalgic twinge of life's amazingness perk me up. It's kept me from so many ledges. It's sometimes kept me cautious, sometimes honest, sometimes adventurous. I've almost never been worried of truly losing myself. And the times that I have were the most terrifying to me. Staring at the void of pointlessness and death, being met with no comforting sensation from the back of my mind. I guess that's why my highs are always high and my lows are always low. Moderation escapes me. Things are brilliant or terrible, and fluctuating between the two is exhausting. I do wish things could be more black and white. That there could be a finite answer to happiness. It's almost like trying to be happy is as absurd an exercise as any. The same way we may still want our parents to see us the way we see ourselves, despite knowing they may never fully. I've tried to share media with my parents before, even media about being misunderstood by a parent, and they just didn't get it. It's a vulnerable thing to share things about yourself with others, to show a piece of who we are to a loved one, knowing they may well just not understand it. Asking someone if they've watched the show you recommended can feel deeply exposing. I once tried to show my father an episode of Skins when I was a teenager, in the hopes he might understand what being me was like, that he might gain an insight into my life or appreciation for the fact I was also a person. Didn't. It felt crushing. Parents are supposed to know us since the day we were born, and yet it often feels like they know us the least. Should we not be able to share an intimate part of ourselves and for them to understand it? Funnily enough, my mum became obsessed with skins. She wanted to watch all of it with me, not just as a bonding experience, but because she wanted to understand her child why he liked this show, why it felt poignant. What could she learn about seeing the way British teenagers interacted with one another and saw themselves in media? 
We all experience this feeling in some way, wanting to and not being understood. And maybe the point is not the success, but the trying. Maybe that's the whole point. Trying. Trying to be heard and to hear one another. Being a human, a person in this world, it can feel like the hardest thing there is to do. Lamenting all the times I've been misunderstood makes me think of how many times I've failed to understand someone else. When I've just not gotten it. When I didn't connect with a TV show, or I was so focused on my reply that I wasn't really listening to their words. When I missed a detail, zoned in on what I thought they meant, or made it about me. We don't always succeed when trying to connect. But the point is that we try. It's nice when we do experience that deep connection, when we bop along to the same song, or are both excitedly ready to share the same piece of trivia, or jump into an analysis of a shared favourite film. I find that with shared kinks, or even just talking about kink with people on the internet. The things we do together and the moments we share in are always going to flood our brains with those good chemicals. Karaoke is fun for a reason. And there's also something to saying we don't share in a feeling. When we acknowledge that we don't experience the same thing, but still want to be shown. We may be met with a bubbling fear that if they don't like this thing I care about, it's because they don't understand it. And that means they don't understand me. But that fear can fizzle out at the knowledge that they're still actively choosing to stay with us. To sit through it. To connect with us. We may look at the screen and see two different things on display. Yet we can be curious about what the other saw and why. We can become closer by acknowledging our inherent differences. I have a friend who put this really well when on the topic of religion. When we were kids, she told me what it was like being Christian when no one she really knew was. Her best friend since childhood came from a Muslim family. She grew up in a melting pot of cultures and viewpoints, and that included the largely atheistic or agnostic views of the majority of our peers, myself included. But she said that didn't matter, and the way she articulated why stuck with me. She said that all evidence was to the contrary of her beliefs. It wasn't possible that both hers and her friend's family traditions were both right. It couldn't be that every religious doctrine had some truth to it. But that didn't deter her faith. She held on to the personal assurance of the divine. She saw our very human ways of understanding the world around us as individual paths to the greater whole. That the practice was not important. That the name or identity or multiplicity of the creator deity that exists in some form beyond our comprehension was inconsequential. Our understanding too limited for us to unveil the secrets of the universe. And in this way, she satisfied her leap of faith by telling me that my own understanding of the universe was just as valid a belief. She may believe in a god and believe that I too commune with and relate to this god in my way, whether that's what I called it or even how I thought of it. That it didn't matter if I prayed or meditated or attended any sermon in a synagogue or temple or church, it only mattered that I live, that I appreciated life that I sought my own happiness. As I've gotten older and connected more with people of other faiths, I still think about this concept of hers and how okay she was with it having flaws. It was honestly a lot more holistic an approach to the acceptance of one's choice to honor belief and not to interfere with anyone else's. 
I'd say that's perhaps more similar to friends of mine with Quaker or humanist leanings, but it's nice. It's validating of everyone's choice and gives importance to one's chosen practices and rituals. I didn't grow up with religious parents, but we still sang hymns at my primary school. There were always Christmas carol concerts and the like. It didn't matter what kids or their families believed. But I remember, probably because I grew up in such a relaxed environment around the topic, that I actively rejected religion. I remember at a very young age pausing during a hymn to question if I believed in a god. And my conclusion was that I didn't. That just didn't make sense to my child brain. So I stopped singing, and chose from then on that I just wouldn't. I also grew up with cousins who were, for a very long time, in a cult, and each went through their own crisis of faith as they aged out of it. I even eventually moved in with a friend who ended up joining another, so you could say I'm a little cult-sensitive. But I always did appreciate that about my mother, that she was curious as to whether there was something I believed in, that it wasn't for her to determine. And that emphasis of faith over doctrine left me open to exploring what I felt this experience of being alive was all about. That's not to say the memories that clench and hang on to my heart aren't equally full of dread. Mixed in with a jumble of highs and lows, I was brought up by two very damaged people who dealt with their damage in very different ways. Both sides of the family were drenched in secrets, just for different reasons. One was an obsession with propriety and reputation, the other a paranoia terrified of the very real ruin contaminated information could bring. Each parent faced a brand of neglect that influenced the way they dealt with life. Will we talk about what happened, or just use a language the kids don't understand? Because of course I'm not supposed to know what's being said, and of course we won't talk about it because we don't do that in our family. We repress everything, and we refuse to go to therapy because why tell a stranger your problems when you can use them to punish those around you? As a socially anxious depressive brimming with paranoia and regret, the time spent overthinking every action I've ever made has become almost biblical. The number of times I've lied awake, overanalyzing old memories, minuscule moments that probably no one else remembers, minor embarrassments that I just can't let go of, still stings as if I were reliving it. But the hurt visits me less as I grow older. The older I get, the lighter the load feels. I'm not consumed by grievance and grief the way I once was. Teenage tragedies and old wounds don't burn so hot anymore. And even new pains don't wash over me the way they might have before. I still get depressed over not connecting with a lot of what I see online. My social feeds are full of dicks and abs and butts and porn, but I spend more time away from it all and... My anxiety in general is so much better. Dealing with new social contexts terrifies me less, and I rely on alcohol to get me through it less. I remember my last panic attack. I was in the middle of Soho, alone. Covid restrictions hadn't fully lifted, and I was overwhelmed by the crowds of people as colleagues had dragged me out to a club. I felt scared and unsafe. I was disorientated, I couldn't breathe or feel my hands. I tried to call a friend, and he wasn't there for me. I hyperventilated. I considered trying to numb myself with a drink. I had to slowly focus and calm myself in public. 
The drunken rabble laughed as they pushed past. And yet, it was over as quickly as it had begun. It had been so long since I'd experienced one. And that's no wonder, really. I'd recently begun to embrace kink and reach out to the wider community. The new connections I'd made in the fetish world already served as a comfort. A reminder that I wasn't alone. I felt no shame reaching out, being honest about how I felt. I felt no fear of rejection. The connections we have can be so fleeting. Time doesn't always seem to factor into their depth. Sometimes people suddenly aren't part of our lives anymore. The last times we said goodbye were never intended to mean forever. Often there is no goodbye. People who leave us just leave. Silently. The ones that I find the hardest to deal with are the ones where no one knows why. No one's at fault. We just drifted apart. We both thought we would stay friends, but maybe we were just forced to by circumstance. We say we'll have to have them round, and it never happens. We wonder at what point it would be too odd for us to reach out. It's a bit like when you see someone at an old friend's gathering you haven't seen in years, and you spend the night drunkenly talking and promising to see each other again soon and exchange numbers, and then eventually I'll see on Facebook that it's their birthday and neglect to write on their wall. But for whatever reason, they might still hold a place in our heart, and we carry parts of their memory with us. It adds to the weight of regrets, resentments, expectations, and fears that all contribute to the kind of depressive state I found myself in a few years ago, where it's easy to conclude nothing means anything, and therefore why not just sit back and watch everything burn? It's so deep a hole to climb out of, and impossible to see the viewpoint of anyone else. And that climb involves a hard journey that includes learning to accept yourself, because you can't see the good in other people until you can see it in yourself. And self-acceptance is the start of that. Or at least, it was for me. It's how I interpreted the ending of Everything Everywhere All at Once. That accepting herself is ultimately what heals Evelyn. That allows her to see the good in her husband and to embrace life with her daughter. When Bucko and Jacko were on the podcast, they brought this film up and on Bucko's recommendation, I watched it. This movie moved me so deeply that I ended up watching it a few times, each time finding more relevance and meaning. The first time I thought it was fun and deeper than I expected. It was joyous and absurd and thought-provoking. But the second time, I was over the spectacle, and my viewing experience pinpointed a little more on how thoughtful it really is. It is profound. It's the nihilistic philosophy of the Joker being optimistically applied to the absurd. It portrays a woman who has seen too much to believe in any moral objectivity and concludes definitively, nothing matters. And she revels in one positive aspect when relaying this to her mother, that it feels good. To know that all the pain and guilt stemming from making nothing of her life fades in the face of this knowledge. And the visual storytelling embraces this with humor. If things don't matter, then they're silly. We can laugh. To assign meaning to anything, knowing this, is even more silly. So there's no reason to fear failure. Unless, of course, your self-worth is directly tied to this idea that you won't or can't. 
the same way Joyce is tied to pleasing her mum. And when her mum refuses to be pleased, she's driven to a breaking point. From her mother's perspective, however, that breaking point is a point of contention. She can't take responsibility for driving her child to that point. She sees the depression and anxiety her daughter is living with and externalizes. It can't be a response to her own behavior or even an innate one. She instinctively blames everyone else. If it's not clear where I'm going with this, yes, this pattern has played out over and over and over again for my father. He could not bear to look within, to analyze his own actions. He took this so far as to blame my mother for the breakdown of their marriage, any adult role model in our lives for the broken relationship with his children. He chose to blame someone very dear to us and successfully ousting her from our lives irreparably tore any chance of reconciliation. It's difficult taking on the perspective of someone who is incapable of taking on anyone else's. Everyone is an influence. You are not your own person, just the influenced Play-Doh of others. Because it scares them. The idea that anyone else might get to influence you. That you may reject their influence. That they cannot control who you are or will become. That they can't suffocate you into submission. It's a necessity of growing up that we look within. We all contain influences from those around us, but we are still responsible for our behavior. Plenty of us do the best we can with what we have. My mother is one of those people. Action and intention don't always see eye to eye, but she tries. Whatever we think is the best given our circumstances doesn't always take into account how we might be causing a response in someone else, or how we might make it easier for them. We can't enter each other's minds. We can't physically step into each other's metaphorical shoes. So it can be hard to face personal realities when we see the effect our actions have had. You can't believe you've impacted your son this way because you've tried so hard not to. You've put so much effort into working hard to provide a life for your family that the notion you may have done all of that and still fucked up somewhere down the line is unthinkable. It can't be true. You find somewhere else to fling that blame. Otherwise, it would be all too easy to despair. Knowing no matter how hard you've tried, your best wasn't good enough. But we never are. We are never good enough for someone. Sometimes that someone is ourselves. We can reconcile with our parents or spouses' unending disappointment in us, but not our own. We can hate them for it, but still want their approval and affection. And it creeps back in. It's not enough, I can't do enough. Is this all there is to life? Is this what existence is? What more is there? When does it end? How can I choose to make it stop? When stagnation is the end of all things that makes life worth living, we can never stop. And since we wrap our output into our self-worth, we can never be good enough. Not just as a provider, or a parent, or a creative, or a person, but as a human. However, it's okay to stop sometimes, and look back. It's why I take comfort in listening to old episodes. I see where I was and how far I've come. I get to have some measure of improvement. We're constantly evolving and changing, what new thing we become is not solely or definitively determined by what we were. 
as who we are shifts. We get to be excited about who we'll become next, and accepting and embracing the change can be liberating. Happiness and satisfaction are two different things, and don't always go together. We don't need one to be tangled up in the other all the time. Waiting to be satisfied, or to have accomplished all of our goals before we can be happy, won't allow us to enjoy the now. And similarly, absurdly, if we did achieve all those things, we may then have no drive to do anything at all. It's why some people return to work after retirement. They haven't found some hobby to fill their time with, to make life meaningful. Something I really appreciated about Everything Everywhere All at Once is getting to see a difficult parent confront their own. Evelyn says it's okay if her father can't be proud of her, because she finally is. She says her father may see in his granddaughter all of his greatest fears squeezed into one person, that she spent most of her daughter's childhood praying she would not end up like herself. But she accepts the stubborn, aimless mess she turned out to be, just like her mother. It's okay, because they can both surround themselves with the people that bring them love and joy, that accept and forgive these parts of them too. Jobu Tupaki's absurdist leap of faith is the one thing that clearly does matter to her, very much, despite her insistence that nothing does. And that is finding a version of her mother she can connect with, who can see what she sees, who might provide an answer, something she missed when she stared into the void and only a void stared back. But when her mother looks into the void and sees the same thing, she's forced to return to her original conclusion, that the only thing worth doing is giving up. You see, when Jobu Tupaki creates the Everything Bagel, she says it's not to destroy everything, but to destroy herself, to see if she can finally escape. She's been shown too much of reality to know there's no objective truth, to have no faith left to leap into. She got to pierce behind the veil and found no god. So she's hoping the absurdity of the world is the objective truth, that there's nothing more, that she can take comfort in her despair and let it consume her. But this ultimately doesn't work. Her theory has a flaw in it, and that is the caveat that relief from life will not bring her relief. You have to be alive to experience relief. And the scene is actually interesting because it also demonstrates how even when we broaden our perspective to include someone else's, we can still miss things. Evelyn incorporates her daughter's desire for her approval and tries to profess her pride in her, but Jory rejects the gesture at the time. Evelyn is still trying to force what she thinks is best on Joy, even though her intention is sound. We all have to work on the way we read each other, and that takes a lifetime of trial and error. We adapt to those close to us, but sometimes it's far easier to read certain people than others. We misinterpret, we fail to read the room, we do the right thing at the wrong time or for the wrong reason. Joy, or rather Jobu, thinks that if she can show her mother the truth of the universe and her mother cannot deny it, that she can then join her in death so that she doesn't have to do it alone. But we all die alone. We enter and leave this world the same way. The time we spend here is what doesn't have to be alone. Evelyn acknowledges the disappointments she has in her daughter, that she never calls and only visits when she needs something, and she does things she knows her mother hates, and in doing so, 
acknowledges that her wanting to spend time with her daughter doesn't make sense. But she does. Always. If you could be anything, anywhere, why not go somewhere else? And her response is a choice. She chooses. We can all choose to cherish what little time we have with those we love. We will always despair. But we can choose. And I think that choice in the absence of objective truth is not some consolation to existing. Our feelings and choices are our world. If that's all there is, then they hold incredible power. And this perspective has afforded me so much peace. There doesn't need to be a prize to earn, a day to win, or a puzzle to solve. All that matters is what we do right now, today. And if we can help to understand one another, we may find a little reprieve to our loneliness. Evelyn starts the movie not liking herself, but in coming to accept herself, she comes to accept others around her. We won't always be accepted by the people in our lives, but that acceptance is something we can give to ourselves, allowing us to broaden our perspective enough to be able to do that for others. And in doing so, we can choose to break the cycles of generational trauma. I get that now, and I take comfort in it. But I can't explain it to anyone in a way that just clicks. Everyone has to come to their own conclusion on how to deal with the reality of life, and in their own time. It took me a long time to accept the absurdity of existence. And living in that absurdity is a choice I have to continuously make. Suicide doesn't work because you don't challenge the absurd, so you can't accept it. I have come to accept life's absurdity and I feel like I can breathe again. I had to go through this. I had to see my boulder roll down the hill and consider jumping off the train. The only way out is through. The hardest prisons to break out of are the ones we lock ourselves in. Because we trick ourselves into believing we threw away the key. We assume there's no point trying to get out because this is the conclusion we came to. This is the narrative we've written. But if we just try forcing those bars open, or rummage around for the key, speak to someone on the other side of the bars, we, we can call for help. We can learn to break free. It's easy to throw a tantrum at the world because it doesn't fight back. Shouting at the void because no one is listening. Because we think no one is listening. I'm guilty of this. Kicking and screaming and catastrophizing. And what I was really doing was begging the world to care. Begging the next day not to come, the way it always will. I was trying to hang on to this moment because I was so afraid of the future. But then I realized all of this was once the future. And it was completely different from what I'd known before. And it was happening so fast. In the end, or the now, I guess, it turned out great. When it didn't, that didn't matter. All that matters is the fight, the dance, the now. And it's okay when it's not okay. Because that's back then, and we can choose to make a new now. It's okay to plan ahead and to try to correct our mistakes, but 
Our plans will fail, and some of our mistakes will be made worse. Randomly, unexpectedly, and nothing will prepare us for it. But if we just keep going, our output won't be perfect, but it will be done. Not finished, but done. We can leave it and move on and create something better. We can't write the winds. We can't plan them in advance. We improvise with what we have and move on from there. Let the losses come as often as the wins. Allow yourself to make some shitty crap. You'll look back on it and cringe and laugh, but that doesn't mean it wasn't worth doing. You can learn and grow. Enjoy your life. Your story is told every day. And while it will eventually end, it's never over. Some days may have an abrupt ending you didn't expect when you weren't looking. The outtakes of life are as precious as the planned moments. Your blooper reel is as valuable as every day you get to shine in a role. And all the moments in between where you're just a background extra making questionable decisions. Yesterday's choices aren't today's, and tomorrow's aren't happening now. Just let go. Keep those cameras rolling. The bad stuff gets managed because you manage it. You don't erase it or pretend it didn't happen. You edit around the negative and work towards the positive. And most importantly, you become okay finding a balance between the two. I was riding high highs for so long the lows were unbearable. I came close to ending it more than once. There is no dramatic catharsis. There is no perfect moment. Life just happens. I am so happy. My life is finally my own. I've met myself, and I like myself. So this is my little epiphany. It's all okay. What you want is okay, and what isn't okay will be. Not because there's some grand plan, but because eventually you will make it so. We will our intentions into being. We'll fuck up, we'll get it wrong, we'll misunderstand, we'll get hurt and angry, we'll laugh, we'll forget, we'll try and fail and succeed and run and walk and sit and smile, we'll brush our teeth and check our phones, we'll do all the little imperfect things that make up a life and we'll forget more of them than we wish to. Weird moments will stay with us. Feelings will outlast memories. We'll paint with broad brushstrokes and misremember details. We will go on. Tomorrow will come. Today will fade. And in all of that, that mad, chaotic dance, all of it will have been okay. Let go. Let it all go dance, laugh, fuck, be happy, be happy. Hey guys, Barney here with a little update. I want to give a quick thanks to AB Universe for sponsoring The Big Top. 
Taking over production responsibilities has been a huge undertaking, and I'm extremely grateful to have such a fantastic sponsor, whose products I have used for years and can personally vouch for. You can now use my promo code BIGTOP to get 10% off your order at abuniverse.com. That's abuniverse.com. Thanks again to ABU for sponsoring this podcast. 